illness, but at one point in my younger years I worked as a nurse in a private care hospital in the Austrian Alps under the direct supervision of Dr. Dorian Bernhard. My motives for becoming a nurse were not entirely altruistic. I had actually gotten myself quite caught up in a troublesome pair of tall blue eyes. He told me he was an artist and was passionate and beautiful but it turned out he only sometimes painted houses and was generally a neurotic and cold, controlling drunk who rarely finished anything except for telling me off, and so with my knickers in a twist it was wondered if it wasn't perhaps besser that I should find a new king and country to serve long before any fires were fully set. I already had the little white shoes from joining a marching band when I was fifteen, so I packed up my basics and took the train to Austria in weather that was so bad I thought I'd be escorted to the hospital morgue rather than a charming little attic room with a view of Munster Lake. I was given the little nurse's dress and an even shorter instruction in wheelchair etiquette, and then that was it. I was a nurse, and a damn fine one at that. But up there, everything was white. The hospital, my outfit, the linen, the enamelware, the linoleum, the beds, the tile, the staff, the patients. But the dim blue of the mountain seemed to cough all over everything and cast it in this in-between shade of light and dark blue. My lusty painter's eyes were that same hauntingly blue luminous color but I didn't want to think about that. So I didn't. My favorite patient that I extensively favored above all the others was a black-eyed woman named Edith Muldoon. She had been a pharmacist with a cute curly little bob haircut and round nickel-plated glasses, but through absolutely no fault of her own had lost her sight, the poor dear, and her black eyes were now completely covered over with cataracts of a milky gray film. At times they looked as though drops of white wax had fallen onto shards of obsidian. At other times they looked as though they were rings of smoke swirling in a dark bedroom where they are no longer there to see it, but the smell lingers so long after. At other times they looked exactly like the accumulation of dissolved mercury salts. But regardless of her history, she was unable to continue pharmacing because she could no longer read the prescriptions. Several overdoses were alligated, but not for a while. So she came to be living in her basic blind in the hospital in Austria, where in the dead-end yard bordered by the blackened grey mountain to the north and the deep, cold black lake to the south, she could not very much disappear. It was still funny to tell her that I couldn't see her, but if she did see the humour in that, she thought it was too dark. Now I wasn't thinking about it. But as I alluded to earlier, my time with the emotionally guarded blue-eyed painter, who's actually an artist, though, was far from perfect. But I had tried to ignore all of that and focus instead on our shared interest in death, politics, and religion. It was in one of these nakedy conversations that he had huskily told me that I was wrong to believe in ghosts, because he did not believe in any afterlife at all and the body was only a temporary meat cage of frustrated ions that look forward to being released from our meaningless human form into the atmosphere at the point of death. It was raining at the time, 
and that made me wonder if he had considered how ionic bonding would mean that the energy from deceased persons would be continuously transferring in form and therefore demonstrating the characteristics of an unseen and eternal life force. But I knew he didn't like to be questioned and had already dismissed my viewpoint as patternicity. And so I allowed him to handsomely continue in his monologue that death is the end with a covertly narcissistic declaration that he was donating his body to science. And what a body it was. But that was little consolation to me when I, in my little white nurse's dress, glanced over the shoulder of Mrs. Muldoon to read in the newspaper that this sweaty, angry nihilist had come to Austria to find me but had been killed by a delivery truck on Church Street that was collecting ballots from the civic election only the night before. It was so like him to die like that. But then he didn't believe in anything, so what was I to do? I was conflicted in my little nursing dress and wounded chest. I had gone away so far to ensure that we would never see each other again. And now I knew we never would. His beautiful eyes closed to me forever. And as much as he had hurt me, I would never look into those eyes again. I swallowed my feelings and focused my attentions on the delightfully dim scene Mrs. Muldoon and wheeling her around the white-blue hospital, describing its ongoing visual consistency so she could keep track of where we were. Three days later, however, as we were sauntering towards breakfast, I saw Dr. Burn Me Harder frantically waving at us from behind the glass door of his office. He was on the phone and was wearing a blue tie with a fish on it. Mrs. Smaldoon had made a much more tasteful choice with a jeweled salamander brooch on a jade-colored mohair, and so I wheeled her elegantly over so he could see what a talented nurse I really was. But then he said, You mustn't go to breakfast. Mrs. Smaldoon, you are booked for surgery this morning at eleven. We found you a cornea donor. Overcome with excitement, we set about planning her surgery outfit. So I barely heard Dr. Bernhard continue that it was some unfortunate house painter laborer who's actually an artist, though, run over on Church Street. Poor man had no one to claim him. Nothing wrong with his eyes, though. And he was an organ donor, the progressive champ. But I've heard his eyes were blue, so they may not match. A few days later, I nervously removed the bandage from Mrs. Muldoon, and just as I feared. There, by carefully and perfectly placed stitches around her black iris, I once again looked into the unmistakable blue of my dead lover's eyes. They say that at the point of death the eyes will retain their last mortal image. So for the sake of science I asked Mrs. Muldoon how she was healing and how well she could see. She told me it was still blurry but they expect it to get clearer as it heals. But when she first woke from the surgery, there was a very curious thing. 
for even with the bandages still on and knowing that her eyes were closed, she saw a sudden bright flash of light. Like bright headlights, you know. But then after, it all returned to dark and went blurry. So maybe the lusty nihilist was wrong about death. At least for one short, bright moment. Love is such a curious thing. We long for it at times with more intensity than we crave our next breath. And despite it being the way that we, all of us, are born and how all of our lives begin, it is full of death references. We seek to love body and soul. We will vow until death. We can be haunted by someone we get ghosted. And when two souls unite, we will have the little death. <gasps> I just can't live without you. But there is an important distinction between love as a state where you feel complete and love as the thing that completes you. And I think this is how the two get confused. Death completes you, not another person. It is our job to fulfill ourselves in our lives. We must face and fill the holes and dark spaces in ourselves where we feel incomplete. It is our spiritual charge to find and understand these reasons why we feel unloved, unskilled, unhealed, undeserving, and imperfect. No one can do that for us, but are rather assisting and enhancing, encouraging and supporting us with the loving energy we are shared from this person as a companion, someone who is also doing their work, facing and filling their holes as we both stumble our way towards our time of completion. Love is us when we are imperfect and incomplete, but feel worthy and beautiful and magical and supported. Unfortunately, because we are imperfect and incomplete, we can feel worthy and beautiful and magical and supported by the wrong things. We will seek physical, moral, emotional, financial, spiritual, and performative perfection in our partners, and we want them to see us as perfect as well. It is this idealism and expectation that so often drags us into pits of disappointment and feelings of betrayal in a breakup. We don't mourn the loss of the farting, snoring, imperfect, hair-losing creature that hogged the bed or made us feel lonely or stupid at times. We mourn the loss of what we hoped they would be. The life we imagined they would bring us. The love we didn't have with them is what we miss the most. If we think of love as a prearranged, perfect destination that we want to arrive at, it makes sense that a relationship like that will die because we were looking to be completed by them. We sought love in death, and so we found it. Does that make sense, darling? I say this because it may be a common feeling right now, because so much of what we trusted our future to be like is being undermined and challenged 
pulled apart by an unknowable number of unseen forces, and as difficult as that is, it may be that it is for love, true love. Love is a state of living, as the glorious and curious, playful and forgiving imperfection that unites us all. Maybe that is why we are being asked at this time to reconsider our relationship with death. In this past year, we all got to have a little dance with plague, pestilence, and precaution. But in the 19th century, tuberculosis was one of many pervasive pathogens that people passed on from person to person, and it certainly was one of the most persistent. As a transgenetic mycobacterium, the waxy, desiccation-resistant mycolic acid outer coating protects this airborne parasitic bacillus until it is inhaled into the lungs of a host where it replicates at a slow but steady pace. Eventually, potentially, the lung sacs will become so full of bacteria that they can rupture, resulting in permanent damage that, if not immediately fatal, will significantly affect the quality of life for that person as they continue to cough out their always growing numbers of infectious bacteria. It was just such a perforated lung pair that ached for breath in the wheezy but delicate and unlocked chest of a dark-haired woman named Robina Burnett, and she lived in a handsome white townhouse on Hollywell Street in Oxford, where she wore pretty white dresses she bought from the haberdashers and tailor shop owned by Mary Williams and her pox-ridden lawyer husband, Roger. Robina was a good girl, educated and poised, and her often jammy cough did nothing to dissuade a young Charles Benson from proposing marriage to her in the spring of 1859. Charles was a wise and sexy young man, with the look of a storm about his eyes and wild and wavy ginger-brown hair. He was a junior barrister from that there Upper Canada who had come to Oxford to complete his education, and there he saw the dainty Robina, in her black hair, delicacy and lace, offset by the commanding cut stone backdrop of empire and tradition, and knew right then and there that he had found his eternal miss. Out of consideration for both her health and frailty in her consumptive condition and the steadily growing woolen mills and garment industry in the recently united province of Canada, Charles asked Robina to join him on a homestead in the hills of Lanark County, where a small but handsome, one-and-a-half-story house with a medium-pitched gable roof and a functional T-shaped layout would stand on a small but often windy hill overlooking their sheep fields in the equally clean and precious, prosperous new world. And so to comfort, impress, and bring a more vital pallor to his never-blushing bride, Charles incorporated highly fashionable and distinctly English features into the house, including a handsome rectangular transom and sidelight fenestration around the front door, returning eaves embellished with quatrefoil cutwork tracery, and a covered porch with a steeply pitched center gable. For the interior walls, between the exposed hardwood beams, Charles ordered a sinfully indulgent, expensive, and brightly colored wallpaper from the fiancé of a neighbor of Robina's. Lush and green like the windy hills of freedom that would fatten his imported flock of sheep, the wallpaper promised to bring the comforting energy of England to the Benson estate, particularly during the all-too-cruel Canadian winters that whiten both earth and sky. Dear Robina, 
so scant of breath in her white pagoda sleeve dress under a knitted sontag and heavily embroidered hooded wool coat, she had to be lifted into the carriage from the train. But when she was in the country and saw her delicate and lacy little white house on the hill surrounded by forests of gold and green, something awoke in her. It was as if the land itself had known her before and pulled her into its enchantment. As she gleefully stepped down from the carriage into her new yard, Charles proudly showed her the fashionable rosebush he had planted beside the parlor window just for her, just like an English country house. Charles was more than pleased when Robina took such a gleeful liking to her new yard and garden, and in the days that followed he would often see her drifting off into the glen while he was at his writing desk, in the green-papered parlor room to the left of the front door. The emerging industries of the established, enterprising, educated, emigrated, and evicted elements of England's colonial rule meant that the sheep-raising counties of the Niagara North were stimulating advancements in production, patents, and political opposition, something that kept Charles Benson busy with notarizing titles and claims and the civil disputes that continuously emerged as people of faith and fracture seek to reconcile themselves with the regenerative restitution that land represents. So while Charles remained predominantly indoors in the green room, Robina took to the air. If still whispery and prone to being short of breath with an occasionally productive cough tinged with the same red as the September staining maple leaves, she felt opulent and free, shaking her fingers in the air like the leaves of ash and maple and curtsying back to the little bluebells and daisies that grew around the recently established fences as though she was in some elaborate and exotic royal court. The cold didn't seem to bother her any more, and she went out barefoot in just her underdress without a shawl or a wrap on, and despite her wheezy and painful chest, she even invited herself to try and sing along with the music she heard in the winds, and went sway side to side in a gentle and free, blissful little dance. This behavior was a little alarming to Charles, who would covertly sip on a never-empty glass of whiskey as he watched her from the window. He never made any mistake to overestimate his wife's frailty and delicate condition, and he knew especially not to underestimate the effects of Canadian weather, particularly in fall. But a faint little peach halo of color had begun to return to Robina's silvery pale cheeks, and she even ventured to carry her own sticks of wood into the house and laughed at herself when she tried to lift a bucket of water. Fortunately, Charles had hired an Algonquin woman to help Robina keep the house, a strong and kind woman with a powerful name and stories, but, as was their custom at the time, they called her Mary. She knew where to pull water from the marshlands where the sphagnum made the water safe from pathogens, and had the strength to carry four buckets a day to fill their cistern. Some of the men who had been builders on the house had reportedly gotten sick and died, and it was assumed it was from drinking water from the stream down the yard, but, of course, understanding microbiology and avoiding contamination and communal outbreaks was well beyond the science of the time. Oblivious as to even why the Scots made the whiskey he enjoyed in such high volume, Charles simply wanted to be absolutely certain that his wife's delicate health had to endure as few stresses as possible so their life could be perfect, and he was borrowing on credit to ensure it. It was immensely surprising, then, that it was Charles whose health began to decline.
Indeed, within days of first arriving, he complained of nausea and headache, but that was something he credited to fatigue from the journey and the nervousness he had in anticipation of his wife's reaction to the farmhouse he had spent so much money on when she had never before lived outside of Oxford. After several weeks of them arriving, however, he was fully dull and weak, complaining of aches all over. His hands trembled, his letters destroyed by tumbled ink, and he retreated to the sofa in intense abdominal pain where his bowels betrayed him continuously, and he would thrash and tremor in terrifying fits of delirium. Helplessly, Robina crouched on her knees at her side with a basin as her handsome young man purged himself of the life and health he had promised her with. She had to use sheep shears to cut the flounces from her delicate white dresses to make rags to wash the filth and stink from his sickly body. But all of the mint tea and mutton broth and porridge with berries she dutifully helped him eat only resulted in more and more reasons for her to cut deeper into her dresses. It was in this time of deep despair that a letter arrived that was the blow that blew the light from both of their lives. For in it was written that Charles had been defrauded in significant investment and was now in crippling debt of which they could never recover. The small but handsome farmhouse was to be surrendered to bailiffs in one week's time. Robina had not finished reading the signature at the end when she raised her eyes to see Charles was silent in a contorted and lifeless mess. His heart had stopped, his sunken eyes staring past this world into the rosebush beyond the window, and our dear Robina was all alone in the green room, with only the small clock on the mantel to count a desolate tempo as she stood in the shocked severity of her grief. Charles's left arm was slumped down over the side of the settee, and a few inches on the floor from his blue-black fingertips lay the shears she had been using to cut her dresses into rags, in the tick-tock, 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 the otherwise silent room. The music of the winds returned to her ears, and she heard the leaves rustling in the trees. Connecting the red turning leaves outside with her black turning husband in some unknowable logic, Robina used the shears to cut the lifeless heart from Charles's chest and ran with it outside. From her skirts she had a strip of delicate and lacy white cloth which she used to tie the ghastly token to the limbs of a now blazing maple tree, and as the wind ripped at her hair in the low October sun, and the red leaves scattered and swirled all around her as she raised her hands up into the air, the severity and futility of what she had done began to well up inside of her, and she fell forward and began to scream. But the years of infection in her lungs made her voice barely a harsh and hollow whisper. Again and again she tried to scream, but again and again she was drowned out by the power of the angrily howling winds, and the effort made her cough with such intensity that it tore through her until utterly exhausted and hopeless. Her face smeared with the blood from her hand where she tried to hold on to her very last imperfect bloody breath. She collapsed to the hill and died. 
her dead lover's heart swinging from the branch above her. When the bailiffs arrived a few days later, the ravens had taken it all away, and the blackness of Charles's skin was so terrifying that the superstitious villagers buried him before the hole in his chest was discovered. Robina was returned to her family in Hollywell, where her dainty white body was dressed in a pretty white dress and placed in a pretty white coffin in a pretty white stone crypt with the rest of her pretty white family. But for those over there in Canada West, who remember where the house once stood, they will swear to you that the wind sounds differently there. And weaving through the ancient ash and maple trees, they have seen the ghost of a woman dressed all in white, with a hole in her chest, her body swaying side to side as though she was dancing. We none of us are perfect, darling, and we must let go of the wish that it could have been different, but use an informed awareness of our longing and discontent to bring a more active engagement with having our needs met. This full moon in Pisces is likely to make us feel highly emotional and vulnerable, almost childish and wounded, still carrying the resentments of tenderness of earlier hurts and loneliness, or just the frustration of how unfair it is to feel unhappy. It is characteristic of Pisces to be a very sentient and sensitive energy, so as a meditation, perhaps fill a drinking glass with water and tap on the outside or even let someone stomp past with heavy feet to see how that energy transfers and quakes the water inside. Next, fill a canning jar and do the same to compare. Oh, sure, you can say, obviously the canning jar is going to absorb more and shake less because it's purpose-built to process its contents under immense pressure and heat, and darling, yes, that's exactly what I mean. If you put a drinking glass in a canning bath, it will break. So this is a good time to give ourselves permission to acknowledge that we will be affected by the energy and forces in our surroundings and know what we cannot do. But when we feel that transfer of energy and shudder and quake inside, it's not that we are being broken or weak, but that we are holding true to our purpose and form, not all glasses are canning jars. Not all of us are warriors. All warriors can and will die of thirst or contaminated water, and there the glass has value. Honor your purpose as you are, darling. The vibrations you feel are an affirmation of your being. The rest of the month is heavily dominated by Libra, so relationships and seeking harmony and balance and justice and reconciliation will be given a good place in our minds. Even aggressive and dominant Mars is in Libra, so I think this month's lessons will be about acknowledging our collective need for true and beautiful love. The love that is us as imperfect and incomplete. The love that is our birthright the vital, eternal energy that is always around us and within us all, magical, immortal energy that unites and forgives all the divisions and judgments and unhealed and unjust actions of the past, 
that comforts and reassures and inspires us to stumble on towards our time of completion. Be cautious with your words and be patient with others in theirs, especially until the 17th. And allow this month to pass as a process through which we develop into new capabilities for love that is not jealous or codependent or controlling and resentful, but adventurous and curious and compassionate. Remember it is the journey, not the destination. Because once you arrive, darling, your trip is over. And there are many reasons to believe that ghosts are those with unresolved, unfinished business. They need more energy to complete. I wish you peace, darling. Enjoy your journey. Treaty 6 territory, and our theme music is by Nano Uribe.